listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Portfolio Wealth Manager, International Real Estate Investor, and Global Citizen, Tiho Brakan. Join us as Tiho helps you grow your wealth, reduce your risk, and increase your freedom. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Tiho Burkan. Thank you so much for tuning in today for episode number 15. Tiho, my friend, how are you doing and what are we going to cover today? I'm very good. I hope you're also very good, Jordan. Uh, today, we'll be covering the stock market. We'll be looking at three major regions, as we always do. So United States stocks, international developed market stocks, excluding North America, and also emerging market stocks. Uh, and we'll be covering the price action, uh, volatility, the breadth, uh, the sentiment, uh, the credit spreads in correlation to the uh, stock market, and many, many other things. And we'll be trying to figure out what comes next after uh, seesawing up and down throughout the uh, first quarter of uh, 2018. Okay, Tio. So starting off here, let's talk about the U.S. stock market. Obviously, we had the correction, which you predicted. It came down, it retested the low, it bounced. But uh, it seems like uh, since then, we've kind of uh, haven't been doing much. But let, let me let me get your opinion on it. What, what's been going on with the price action in your view? Yeah, so 2017 was a terrific year. So naturally, with such low volatility and such wonderful gains, the market's not going to make it easy for us all the time, and there won't be two easy ones in a row. So obviously, 2018 is not for the faint-hearted. I mean, the average true range of the volatility within the stock market is the highest since 2009, since the end of the great bear market. So obviously, it's a difficult situation. Um, when I talked to my clients and when I made some certain trades and recommendations, we, we made some attempts to buy the lows on 12th of February and also at the end of March and early April. Uh, both of them saw a, a decent rebound. But one of the things that we'll be discussing here is the fact that stocks just cannot get any traction. It doesn't mean it's bearish. And there's plenty of reasons to be bullish, as we will discuss as well. Uh, so it's a balanced approach that I'm looking at. But having said that, uh, for majority of 2017, Jordan, Stocks were sitting above the three-month moving average, and the drawdowns were very small. The volatility price movements were also very small. For majority of 2018, the price is uh, trading below the three-month moving average, and the volatility is very high, and the drawdowns constantly remain uh, 5% or more. Okay, Tio, so how would you characterize uh, the recent volatility? Uh, I mean, we had the spike. It's leveled off somewhat. Um, give me your thoughts on that and what you expect for volatility over the next couple months. Well, we have a fight between the bulls and the bears. We have a fight between buyers and sellers since 27th, uh, 26th and 27th of January 2018. And that was the peak and a blow off top. Um, so basically... Uh, the downside protection or support, uh, we have, I guess, a rising uptrend line, and we also have the 200-day moving average. Uh, depending on what somebody uses, it's up to you. 
um, that's holding the prices uh, from falling further than the 10% drawdown that we've had. At the same time, we have a declining trend line, and uh, this is where the sellers continue. They're more and more eager to sell. Every time uh, a rally rebounds, and we have these relief rallies along the way, uh, they are rebounding less and less. The sellers are more and more eager to fade the rallies. Um, obviously, we had a big volatility spike, equivalent to 2015 on the VIX. But as I just mentioned, uh, average true range is much higher than at any time since 2009. Um, volatility has calmed down uh, to a degree. Uh, it was very, very high in February. Uh, but we are not falling back to those levels that we got used to, especially trading below 10, which were, you know, they were calling it the boring market, the uh, constant uptrend. So volatility uh, continues to remain elevated, even though it's come down from the, from the big spike that we had in February. But this ongoing fight with, between bulls and bears is coiling into towards the decision point. So we're getting closer to the climax. And soon the stock markets will be telling us in which directions they want to move. Uh, not too far to go now, Jordan. I mean, we're getting to the end of that uh, apex of that triangle. Okay, Tio. So as far as which direction it's going to move, uh, most people, they believe breadth is a, a good leading indicator. I'm sure you believe the same. I know you're watching breadth very carefully, and, and you have a couple charts here that you've provided us. Uh, what are they showing and what are your takeaways on breadth and, and what it may tell us is coming down the line? Sure. Well, we have 12 charts to get through in this podcast. So I could have brought about seven or eight breadth charts with me, but I decided to bring a kind of like a bearish one and a bullish one. Uh, the bearish one we'll discuss first. In my opinion, and from what I've studied historically, we haven't had a breadth thrust. Now, breadth thrusts are, are kind of um, looked at in different uh, ways depending on who is uh, analyzing the market. Certain people would say breath thrusts are connected to up and down volume on the New York Stock Exchange. And once you have very high volume uh, on the upside, it indicates that a uh, huge amount of money is coming into the market and pushing just about all securities in one direction. Uh, that eagerness usually creates a liftoff. Uh, for me, and what I personally like to use is look at the percentage of S&P 500 stocks that trade above the 50-day moving average. Uh, while no indicator is perfect, I've noticed with this indicator, in particular over the last 10 years, that whenever we have uh, a movement of 90% or more of the S&P components uh, trade above their 50-day moving average after a major sell-off or a correction, that's usually a breath thrust. Just about the whole market shifts into one direction and we start a rally. That rally can be sustained for a few weeks to a few months generally, or sometimes even for a couple of years as the, when we saw it in 2013. But generally speaking, uh, that's what we're looking for. Whenever we had uh, moves that were less than 90%, so maybe 80 or 70 or 60% of the market rebounds, those are relief rallies and they end up being dead cat bounces or eventually they fizzle out with not too much further gains. Uh, something that we commonly saw throughout 2008, and also something that we saw just prior to the August crash in 2011, something that we also saw prior to a 10% sharp sell-off in 2012, and also something that we saw after a very strong rebound at the end of 2014. Uh, that rebound 
only registered about 85% of components moving to the upside. And from late 2014 until May 2015, the S&P was unable to move higher. The breadth was sinking. Eventually, we had a Chinese devaluation in August 2015 and a sharp fall. Afterwards, S&P rebounded rather sharply, almost made a new record on a total return basis, but the percentage of components was just above 80%. So the breath once again didn't do a breath thrust. So once again, we went down as oil bottomed in January and February of 2016. Uh, the start of 2016 was a bad one, and it dragged the U.S. stocks and many other stock regions around the world down. And it wasn't until March and April of 2016 where we saw a breath thrust that the recent rally really got underway. Um, currently, uh, despite the fact that we've become oversold in February as well as in early April, we haven't seen a meaningful move to the upside, Jordan. Uh, the breath hasn't gotten above 60%. So these attempts to rally have been rather weak and there is no major interest from the buying side of the market from the bulls to really indicate that the correction is behind us. Now, maybe it's coming. I'm not necessarily bearish, but I'm just indicating that this is a bit of a red flag. Yeah, and Tio, I just want a quick comment on buying and selling pressure here. Uh, there, there's a chart that uh, those following on the atlasinvestor.com and on our YouTube channel can see, and that looks like it's gone fairly deep into negative territory. And do you interpret that as kind of a warning signal, more of a warning signal or more of a, a sign that the market just got really oversold? Well, all or nothing days, as we call them, or you know, distribution and accumulation days where we have 80% of breadth as well as 80% of volume, I put them together in this chart, most people don't, uh, move towards either the upside or downside. Uh, that is a very good indicator, but as you'll notice, uh, the tick rule on the New York Stock Exchange was removed uh, in 20, 2007. And since then, the volatility and the swings in breath have been a lot more meaningful. Um, so it's difficult to say uh, how to interpret this indicator because it can be interpreted many ways. One of the ways you can definitely look at it is whenever you have an overwhelming amount of distribution days, um, that creates an oversold condition. And you usually tend to have a rebound from that. But that doesn't mean that that rebound will last and create a new bull trend. Uh, as we saw in the middle of 2017, we had a large increase in distribution days relative to uh, anything that we saw for several years before that. And that was the start of immense selling pressure. Um, you know, so usually it can either kick off a downtrend or it can be at the, seen at the end of a downtrend like it was in October 2011, uh, when we had uh, a decent amount of distribution days relative to accumulation days, and they marked the end of the selling. So no indicator should be looked at on its own, Jordan. We should put them all together, and we have to study the general conditions. I think one of the greatest traders in the world, Jesse Livermore, and a great book written about in the reminiscence of a stock operator, he always used to mention that you look at many, many different things, and then you have to study the general conditions. And currently the economy is not showing any signs of major slowdowns or anything remotely close to get into a recession. Now that doesn't mean it won't do that in six or nine months from now, but for the time being, stocks look like they're correcting in a healthy manner, and maybe there is a little bit more correcting left, but having said that, this could uh, either 
be interpreted as start of the selling pressure or the end of the correction. It remains to be seen. We have to put it with other indicators, some of which we're about to discuss, uh, you know, within the following few questions. Yes, absolutely. A n- nice transition for me there, getting into sentiment, because that's another indicator. <laughs> and uh, sentiment is something I know you really enjoy uh, build- building those charts and-, and watching those indicators. Uh, what are sentiment surveys telling you about the market right now? Well, there's a, there's a variety of them, and uh, we can go through them one by one. You'll make the podcast drag on for another extra 20 minutes, and it'll maybe bore the living crap out of everybody. So I don't want to do that. I'd rather put it all together. And instead of me doing it, the great people over at Sentiment Trader, in particular Jason, who does good work, he's got a great indicator, which is the advisor and investor uh, sentiment model. Um, and uh, basically, I got it here for the last two decades. Uh, the two standard deviations, uh, negative below the mean, in other words, when the sentiment drops into ridiculously low bearish territory relative to where it was, let's say three to six months ago, the way that he compiles the indicator, I'm sure, uh, that's about 10% or below or single digits. And we just had that. So over the last decade in particular, whenever sentiment dropped to single digits, and the economy continued to expand as it has over the last nine years. Uh, that was a buying opportunity. So that happened during the flash crash in uh, May to July uh, 2010. And in July, the sentiment indicator signaled a buy uh, opportunity. And then the same thing happened once again in August 2011 during the Eurozone debt crisis and the uh, debt ceiling uh, you know, saga that was going on in the US Congress. That was a buying opportunity. And then we saw the Chinese devaluation and the oil bottom in August 2015 and January to February 2016. Those were single-digit readings, and those were great buying opportunities too. And we just got one last week, Jordan. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen whether this one is going to give us the same signals as the, as the previous ones during this bull market. One thing that I want to note is that during 2007 to 2009, sentiment would drop to ridiculously low levels as well. But when the downtrend is in full force, all that sentiment can really indicate is just a really oversold condition to the point where we will have some kind of a relief rally. But it didn't stop the bears continuously pushing prices lower and lower and lower until we finally got to some kind of a decent valuation relative to where we were. Um, So, you know, sentiment together with breadth, price, volatility, trending, uh, momentum, uh, together with valuations and general conditions. we got to put it all together. Uh, so sentiment is uh, decently negative here. So now we have to look at price action and whether it's going to confirm uh, and, and whether it's going to use this negative sentiment as the fuel, as a wall of worry to rally further. Uh, if it doesn't, it usually indicates that there's something wrong. So I'm on full alert right now watching it very closely. Okay, and I'll just add for the listeners just because I think this is important. It's something I learned from you, how sentiment has to be viewed in the context of the overall trend. And sometimes I think, I think uh, at least in my past as an analyst and others, sometimes they forget that when they're just looking at sentiment. They just assume that, okay, sentiment's really extreme. There's going to be a big move in the other direction. But I mean, is that I assume that's something you agree with. Very, very important and, and perfectly stated, by the way. Um, you know, if the trend, if, if we're in a bull trend, 
you ought to be buying negative sentiment or at least sentiment that gets decently negative, like we saw during 2012 all the way to 2015. Those were all kind of uh, buy the dip opportunities. But when we were in a downtrend, as we saw from 2000 to 2002, whenever sentiment rebounds above 50%, you got to sell the rip. You know, it's totally opposite mentality in the 2000 to 2003 bear market than it was, let's say, from 2012 until 2015 bull trend, which where we stayed a large number of days above the 200-day moving average. And any time we had a bit of a shakeout, it was a buying opportunity. So yeah, price and trend is first, and then other indicators, including the sentiment, are second. Okay, now, thank you for that, Tio. Now, moving on, let's talk about credit spreads, because junk bonds is something I noticed uh, you know, f- following your work and, and your great charts. I mean, junk bonds have rallied pretty nicely despite the correction in the market and credit spreads uh, have stopped widening. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look, we have a rising interest interest rate environment. So all fixed income is under pressure. Uh, If you have a look at the short end of the curve in treasury market, it's falling. If you have a look at the intermediate as well as the longer end of the curve, they're also correcting substantially. Some of them are down now for the fourth week in a row as we record this podcast. Uh, at the same time, corporate spreads, investment grades, uh, bonds, they're not doing that well. Emerging market debt priced in uh, US dollars is not doing that well. Priced in um, foreign currencies and local emerging market currencies has been doing well until the recent US dollar rally. And that's now started to kick off. And that's something we will probably cover in, in the next couple of podcasts. Um, and that's putting pressure on, on that side of the fixed income market. Uh, and then finally, junk grade is actually outperforming treasuries. So it's declining on an equivalent maturity. Treasuries are declining more and junk bonds are declining less. So the credit spreads remain, you know, decently narrow. And to me, that indicates that there isn't a major stress under the hood of the market, so to speak, in that metaphor. Uh, there isn't anything serious, at least from the credit investors that are telling us that it's something major that we should be worrying about. So maybe this is just a price correction, valuation, reversion in some ways, uh, you know, and maybe it runs for a little bit longer until we reset some of the other indicators as well. Uh, But generally speaking, uh, you know, the most important thing here is that it doesn't seem like we are having uh, a major sickness in the body of the financial market. Uh, might be just a little flu or a cold that we're catching. Okay, I, I want to get your your final thoughts here on U.S. equities, but before we do that, uh, first let's cover international stock markets. Sure. Okay, Tiho, so now you're going to cover international stock markets, including emerging markets. Let's start off focusing on the foreign developed markets, excluding the U.S. Uh, How have they been performing in recent weeks uh, in both nominal and relative terms compared to the U.S.? So a recent podcast that we covered the stock market, which was a couple of uh, podcasts before the Indonesian one, we were discussing that this market in particular, this region was lagging. 
and uh, Europe and Japan predominantly here were underperforming. This has changed uh, recently. This is this was the only re major region that undercut its February lows. Emerging markets and S and P 500 U.S. equities did not. So we were underperforming here quite substantially, but now we've really caught up. We just had a straight rally in April, quite impressive. I mean, if you look at the uh, one component of, of this uh, overall region is, the, for example, is the Singapore equity market. If you look at MACI Singapore, just recently, it came very close to making all-time new highs above the January 26 peak. So there are some markets in the world that are doing pretty well. After the correction finished, if you are good at picking them, you would have made a substantial amount of money in the recent relief rally. Uh, having said that, generally speaking, you can see when you put them all together, especially the major ones with the largest market caps, uh, we are failing to exceed uh, the rebounds of uh, February 2018. So uh, look, we're barely trading above the three-month moving average and we seem to be reversing once again. Remains to be seen whether we can hold this. But a very similar picture to the U.S. equities, Jordan. Not much we can say here. Recent outperformance is not guaranteed to continue. Uh, you know, so it re especially if we ha see now weakness in the euro and the Japanese yen, as we are seeing relative to the U.S. dollar. U.S. dollar usually, not always, but usually pressures international markets a lot more than it pressures uh, local markets. Right. And I know that we're going to have an episode focusing on currency developments within the next couple of weeks. But moving on to you, next, let's talk about uh, emerging markets, because looking at the EEM ETF, I mean, the recent action in that has just been it, it looks to be relatively weak. <laughs> well, you're allowed to use a worse word than that. I'll give you another try, Jordan. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that word I used a couple podcasts back, uh, I think, was shit. Okay, well, it, it looks. Sorry. Excuse my French. I'm sorry, but it it does look like shit. Yeah, well, it looks it looks pretty awful. I mean, honestly speaking, the rebound out of the February lows, twelfth uh, of February lows or the ninth of February lows, whichever way you pick it, uh, over that weekend we bottomed out. That was a very powerful rally, and emerging markets outperformed on that initial rebound. <clears throat> I guess the rubber band fell so much in early February and emerging markets were at one point down by almost 14% or so and the rubber band snapped back. So that initial reflex rally was very powerful. <clears throat> Excuse me. But since then, we we have failed to rally since the late March and early April when I was giving some recommendations to my clients to ha give it a crack uh, to see whether the recent rebound has some legs. And clearly, in emerging markets, he had no legs, he had no arms, he had no fingers or toes. So he had nothing. So uh, basically, if you bought it, you're probably under, under the water already. And we have this coiling in triangular pattern, which to me, as a tape reader, looks ready to break down. It doesn't mean that emerging markets will now enter a catastrophic crash, as a lot of the perma bears, and you might remember them back from 2015, who are predicting uh, like major crashes in emerging market, they'll most likely stick their necks out again from their bear caves and they'll come out and say how awful the sector is looking and how China is going to, uh, you know, crash and, uh, you know, Brazil's got problems and Russia's got sanctions and India's got uh, a slowdown coming and uh, 
Africa is in a major, major problem. So you, all, usually we, there's plenty of negative news, which we call the wall of worry. Uh, but if you look at the price action, there is definitely a potential for this market to correct uh, maybe by another 5 to 10%. I mean, why not? They have had a, a meaningful and significant rally uh, over the last two years and a couple of months. So, uh, you know, in, in some ways, I think over 70 or 80%. So why couldn't the market correct 20% after such a, a, a rip-your-face-off rally, right? So it's only uh, natural to have a mean reversion. And this is the only market that still remains, uh, you know, above its 200-day moving average. And unlike the U.S. equities and international developed markets, it never even came to touch it. So uh, it's been trading above the 200-day moving average for a long time. So it looks like it wants to break down. It looks like it wants to mean revert back to this uh, moving average that everybody follows, including us. Um, and that's natural that it wants to do that because markets tend to mean revert to these moving averages from time to time. No trends can last forever. So, uh, you know, I'm expecting a little bit more of a pullback, but will that be a buying opportunity? Yeah, I think so. It depends how far it goes. But, you know, valuations on a relative basis are still very attractive in emerging markets. And that's something that I've been discussing on my blog, on my podcast now as well, and uh, in other interviews and with other clients since late 2015. I've been a big fan of emerging markets, Jordan. Okay, Tio, I know you covered a lot there. I just want to give you one last chance. Any final comments you have on foreign and emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, uh, recently we had leadership from emerging markets over the last two years, and they're now stalling. Uh, and they might be leading us to the downside. That just might be weak because the dollar's rebounding. Uh, it remains to be seen. But I think all markets uh, have a chance to correct, especially international markets and emerging markets, if the dollar rebounds some more. Um, and remains to be seen how far this correction will go. I mean, sentiment and uh, is is gotten down to uh, very very low levels, as we've already discussed. And credit spreads are not really widening to let us know something dramatic is happening. But at the same time, every attempt to rally since the 9th of February and 12th of February low has not really been a major participation rally where a lot of the breadth of the index uh, gets moving in one direction, the bullish direction. So buying interest is not really there, Jordan. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. And uh, I'm watching it closely. I'm not very exposed at this moment in time uh, and in particular my favorite sector the emerging market sector is underperforming so I don't want to sit there and uh, lose a necessary amount of money I rather watch it correct have a proper washout and then get back in when it's time to uh, party Okay, Tiho. So normally when we cover global equities in these podcasts, we just focus on the big indices and not specific sectors. You wanted to focus on several sectors. Uh, you know, the news of the trade war, potential trade war has impacted markets. Tell us what's going on as far as small caps and, and maybe uh, uh, if there is any new disparity between small caps and large caps. Sure. Well, uh, small caps have been actually outperforming. 
in, in recent uh, weeks since the correction started. And they are more so consolidating than uh, correcting and, and trying to double bottom, as a lot of people have been recently saying. Uh, they're not really uh, breaking below the 200-day moving average, and they didn't even experience a 10% correction. So they held up much better. <clears throat> Excuse me. So on a relative basis, uh, small caps have outperformed large caps, Jordan. And, uh, you know, it remains to be seen, though, if that can continue. Whenever we enter a downtrend, and a downtrend will come eventually once again. I'm not sure when. Uh, I'm pretty sure none of us are sure when, uh, apart from the ones who are charlatans and they pretend they can see things because, well, maybe they can actually because their crystal ball is working better than ours. But regardless of that, whenever the downtrend does come eventually, uh, and small caps will most likely, in my opinion anyway, as a prediction, uh, and take it as a grain of salt, uh, you know, but they will probably correct more than the large caps because the valuations in the sector are just that much higher than the valuations that we've covered many, many times on these podcasts in large caps and U.S. equities like S&P 500 and Dow Jones and so forth. So, uh, look, they're outperforming now, but I'm not very eager to go and chase and buy them despite the fact that they might have some more upside. Valuations are just at nosebleed levels for me, Jordan. So, I, you know, I'm kind of staying away regardless. Okay, now let's move on and talk about real estate investment trusts, also known as REITs. This is something we've covered uh, off and on in recent podcasts. I know we're going to get into the bond market and interest rates, I believe, in the next podcast. But uh, give us your current insights on REITs. Yeah, well, if the small caps are the ones that are doing better during the current trade war correction uh, and the rising interest rate correction, then the opposite side of that is the REIT sector and to some degree utilities, which we're not discussing here. But REITs are the ones that are underperforming dramatically and they've corrected by over 16%, I think, from peak to trough. Uh, at one point in time, I was actually short the sector, but we've covered recently on the fall uh, as the sentiment now in the overall equity market is getting rather bearish. Um, but yeah, REITs have corrected, and the correction has been, uh, I guess, run of the mill of something that we've expected and something that we've seen since at least 2012. So taper tantrum produced about a 15% correction for REITs, and the emerging market slowdown and Chinese stock market crash and the commodity bust also produced about a 15% correction. Uh, and then the initial rise in interest rates from July 2016 uh, into into early parts of uh, 2017, that also produced about a 15% correction in the REITs. They had a rebound but never made a new high and they looked very weak, something that I was discussing for majority of the late 2017. And finally, they cracked with the stock market. And now they've corrected by about 15% once again. And they're failing to rally, Jordan. They're failing to rally because interest rates are knocking on the door of 3%. And uh, the 10-year treasury is something that we'll be discussing in the, in, the, in the next podcast. We'll give a lot of attention to the overall fixed income market. And I guess why rate-sensitive uh, and uh, interest rate proxy sectors such as REITs could continue to underperform some more if rates continue to rise. Okay, Tio. Now, finally, I just want to get your opinion on current valuations after this 10% correction we've had because looking on Twitter, the perma bulls are saying 
The market is no longer overvalued. It's now fairly valued. And then the perma bears are, of course, saying valuations are still very extreme. So uh, g- g- give us uh, give us the real the real deal on valuations now. Well, I'm I'm not so sure if there is a real deal because it depends which camp you fall into. I don't like to fall into camps. I'm not a bull and a bear. Recently, somebody contacted me on on Twitter and they said, "I'm pretty sure you are bullish on your call, and you're a bull." Uh, I don't do it like that. My job is to make money, not to be a bull or a bear. I'm not in it to, you know, uh, analyze things and to be right. I'm just after the profit. So I'll be a bull in an uptrend and I'll be a bear in a downtrend. Uh, so I don't really fall into any uh, case here. So the perma bulls will say that the forward price to earnings valuations have uh, mean reverted back to what somewhat of cheap valuations of what we saw in 2016, or at least not cheap, but fairly valued valuations, you know, something attractive, uh, as they would call it. Uh, Perma bears will point to uh, a numerous number of indicators, including a lot that the, um, you know, the famous ones that have been produced, such as uh, US equity valuations relative to the GDP, um, and price to book valuations, which are really high, and also CAPE. And I've included CAPE here as well. So if we are looking at, you know, one of the more followed indicators, which is the CAPE ratio, the current correction is absolutely meaningless. Uh, By the way, both for bulls and the bears. If we're still in a bull market, valuations can continue to expand. Valuations are not a timing indicator. Valuations couldn't tell you that 2007 was about the top. Uh, They might have helped you in, you know, 2000. But one could have stated that, you know, by 1998, the market was so overvalued at a historical high, at a record high, that that was the top two. So valuations are not really a timing indicator. So in my opinion, the current correction has done nothing for both the bulls and the bears. If we're still in a bull market and we continue to go higher, valuations can exceed the current peak, uh, uh, which was seen like a couple of months ago. At the same time, if you're in a bear camp, and the current 10% correction in price, if you're wondering whether it's done anything to reset valuations, totally meaningless. It's barely moved. We would need a 50% drop to, to make this market very attractive as a generational buying opportunity, similar to, let's say, 2003 or 2009 or 1987 or you know, 1974, 1982, or you know, even going further, like 1949. So we, we need a, a meaningful drop. I'm not predicting one, but I'm just saying. So, you know, valuation-wise, we're still expensive, but we could get more expensive, uh, you know, but there's always a handful of ways that you can create an indicator, uh, you know, switch around a few numbers, make it a forward-looking or something like that, and, uh, and voila, magically you have something that looks a little bit cheaper than it is. So I'm a big skeptic of playing around too much with something. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Uh, valuations are not used for timing, as I said. They're just used to indicate you know, whether you should be buy in a strategy of buy and hold or whether you should be cautious. Uh, and cautious investors that are, uh, you know, have the right risk management in place, Jordan, they can still make plenty of money on both the bull and the bear side of the market. There's no reason to fall into just one camp.
Okay, Tio, before we wrap up this podcast, just a final two-part question for you. First, please share with us a conclusion to everything that you've discussed. And secondly, please give us a preview of what you're going to discuss in episode number 16, where we cover the bond market. Okay, so regarding the stock market, we are coiling in into a fight between the buyers and the sellers, and we are reaching a kind of a climax. Uh, the buyers haven't been that interest rate, and we haven't seen uh, uh, a breath thrust in any way, any meaningful way that would tell us, as it previously has, that we have a major rally underway. At the same time, we've seen a huge number of uh, in distribution days, which tend to mark at least a, a short to intermediate term bottom, uh, too much selling pressure, in other words, and the sentiment surveys themselves have dropped to uh, levels equivalent to what we saw during the flash crash, the Eurozone crisis, and the China slowdown of 2015-2016. So some positives, some negatives, and another positive is also credit spreads are not giving us any kind of warning signals that something major is around the corner. Uh, so this is a typical you know, uh, fight and a tug of war between bulls and bears, and the price is acting very technical. Uh, emerging markets are the laggards now after leading for a couple of years and they're failing to uh, rally in any meaningful way. If the US dollar rally gets underway, they could be in even more trouble. Um, small caps continue to out outperform some other rate proxy sectors, such as uh, real estate and utilities, and in particular, small caps are doing better than large caps. They're not as affected during this trade war issues that are going on uh, in recent weeks. Finally, valuations have not reset in any meaningful ways to help the bulls or the bears. Uh, so not a lot of change there. 10% has, uh, you know, it's, it's not a very significant move in the market after rallying for nine years in a row without a down year. Um, so generally speaking, uh, it's not the easiest market condition as the uh, average true range uh, is the highest of the last few months since March 2009. It's very volatile out there. And I would advise any market participant to focus on the protecting their capital and the return of their capital instead of the return on their capital. 2017 was easy and 2018 so far has proven to be difficult. Um, regarding interest rates, Jordan, they continue to move uh, on the upside and I think it bears watching uh, uh, the 30-year treasury a long bond, which is now approaching 3.25%. Uh, and if that breaks, we could have a substantial move higher on the long end of the curve as well. Uh, we'll be covering all things fixed income in the next podcast. And I'm really looking forward to that because it's been a while. And there's a lot of developments in the bond market, uh, especially as of the last two weeks, uh, as they started to as the yields are starting to move up yet again. Now, as we close, we want to thank you, the listener for tuning in. If you have a moment, please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. And if you have a question for Tiho or any comments or suggestions, you can email to us at podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. That's podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. On behalf of Tiho Burkhan, thank you so much for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. We hope you will join us again for episode number 16.
Thank you for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. To be notified of future podcast episodes, visit theatlasinvestor.com and sign up for our free newsletter. T. Hope Khan offers his clients a wide range of services, including portfolio construction and wealth management, one-on-one -on -one consultations, global real estate opportunities, international tax planning, citizenship and residency planning, and one-on-one -on -one mentoring. For a free consultation, visit theatlasinvestor.com and contact T. Hope Khan. 